Well, good morning. My name is Isaiah. I am one of the pastors here at Sojourn, and uh, it's a blessing to have you in our services today. Today is Palm Sunday, as Mark mentioned earlier, and uh, today begins what is traditionally known as the Passion Week of Jesus. And the most, perhaps the most famous day of Passion Week is Friday, called Good Friday. Uh, there was little recognized as good about the first Good Friday. That is the day that Jesus Christ was crucified with all of the terrifying events surrounding that particular day. But today begins this week of Passion Week and is Palm Sunday because of the events we just heard read from Mark 11. And throughout the world today, in various cities and countries, there will be different processions and pageants and parades even celebrating and memorializing what we just read about. I've got some pictures on the screens here from Jerusalem and some of the uh, churches that are there from uh, some of the earliest sites of Christianity. There'll be celebrations taking place in those churches to Austria Well, they'll have processions through the streets, waving branches, all the way to Nicaragua. Individuals will celebrate Palm Sunday. In some places like Mexico and the Philippines, individuals will flog themselves. They'll beat themselves with whips until their backs are covered in their own blood. Or they'll even crucify themselves to a cross. You can look this up. I'm not making this up. Many of the major news sites will have pictures this week of individuals who have crucified themselves to a cross. All of this done for the purpose of trying to receive forgiveness of sins. Trying to repay a debt of sin. And all of it happening in the week that we are to memorialize, to remember what Jesus Christ has done for us. And it brings up a very interesting question. Why did Jesus die to begin with? If this week has turned into a celebration in many parts of the world in which it's it's nothing more than simply a show or an opportunity to beat oneself in order to find favor with God, why did Jesus die in the first place? Now, if we were to go back to Mark chapter 8, and we were to read Mark 8, 9, 10, through chapter 11 into 12 and 13, we would walk away with this understanding. Jesus is intentionally and strategically escalating the tension between himself and the religious leaders of his day. He is stirring the pot. And it culminates in the final week of his life. From his first entry into Jerusalem, all the way to its final conflict, the the crucifixion of Jesus, Jesus seems to be escalating the conflict. Now, why would he do that? What is the purpose of that? Well, Jesus is highlighting the contrast between the way to God that he has come to open 
and the false way to God that the religious leaders of his day had been proclaiming, living, and enforcing. And that way to God we might term using this, self-righteous religion. Self-righteous religion. I'm going to use that phrase over and over again today. So let's understand what we mean when we talk about self-righteous religion. Self-righteous religion is the use of any external act, status, quality, or characteristic apart from God's grace to evaluate my own standing with God or others standing with God. That is self-righteous religion. Now, how might we illustrate this? Well, we can go back to the Old Testament specifically to the law of Moses. Now, God had brought Israel out of the land of Egypt, right? He'd redeemed them out of bondage, out of slavery, and then he gives them what we know as the Mosaic law. And God gave the Israelites this law to draw their hearts towards God in obedience for the deliverance he had already given to them. But the religious leaders had turned the Mosaic law into a checklist. It was devoid of affection and it was a checklist to earn God's favor. A checklist to earn His deliverance and to become right with God. So they built a superstructure of rituals and acts that gave the appearance of a true religion. The temple was a vital and vibrant place. But it was devoid of of power. You see, the religious leaders and their followers focused on the externals rather than on the heart. And obedience should always be motivated from the heart. And so these externals became the means by which they evaluated themselves before God and others before God. And the temple became the focal point of this superstructure. And that got worked out practically in specific ways. So the Samaritans, who were part Jewish, but yet had intermarried with other nations, they were considered, I'm going to use a a, a not very nice phrase, they were considered half-breeds by the Israelites. And they were held to a much lower socio-status in the community. They were hated by the religious people. And the entire province of Galilee. So you have Jerusalem, the the center of Israelite worship, but then you have the province of Galilee, what was like the backwoods of Israel. And the Galileans, they were looked down on because they did not have the proximity to the temple and the superstructure of the self-righteous religion. But the reality is we don't have to go back to Israel to understand self-righteous religion, right? You and I face the same challenge of focusing on the externals rather than on the hearts. Rather than on obeying our Lord out of gratitude for what He has done, rather than obeying Him in order to earn His favor. So we, we tend to 
focus on what we do or don't do, on what we have done or haven't done as a means of evaluating our standing right now before God. Externals becomes the mean, become the means of evaluating ourselves and others. And these externals can look really good. Things like going to church, like giving to the work of the Lord, like baptism, religious activities in a religious environment, being generous with time, energy, and money, reading the Bible, acts of self-denial and sacrifice, teaching a Bible class of some sort. None of these things are bad. But when these externals become the means by which we gauge whether or not we are in a right relationship with God, we are engaged in self-righteous religion. And then these external means might be a way of comparing ourselves to others, using some status, some standing, some position, some quality that we have in order to judge where others are at in their walk with God like position in society or their level of influence within a culture or their level of distance from a culture. Someone's work ethic, someone's morality, political affiliation, socioeconomic status, tax brackets, level of education, all of these things can become external means by which we judge one another's position by which we judge whether or not one is in a right relationship to God or whatever our conception of God is. And I hope you hear that someone doesn't have to be religious per se in order to be engaged in some sort of self-righteous religion. Someone doesn't even have to claim to believe in God, but is still trying to establish their own goodness and morality and righteousness in some sense, completely cut off from any understanding of God and judging others by their own standards. So self-righteous religion is something that we are born with as human beings. And this is all important as we come to Mark chapter 11 and Jesus' entry into Jerusalem because here's the truth. Jesus came to do away with self-righteous religion once and for all. That's why he came. So let's look this morning at four truths that will help us to understand the death of Jesus. And we're going to work our way through Mark chapter 11 and even some of the succeeding chapters. So truth number one, to understand, to rightly understand why Jesus came to die. Jesus comes in the name of God as the anointed of God. Now, Mark read for us Mark chapter 11 verses 1 through 20. If you were to back up into chapter 10, one of the last titles of Jesus used is Son of David. A blind man calls out to Jesus asking him to heal him and says, Son of David, have mercy on me. Now in the Bible, anytime you come upon the phrase Son of David, understand that this carries royal or kingly implications. Jesus Uh, or rather the term son of David, is used to describe a descendant of the great King David. But more than that, it's used to point to the descendant 
of David, the one promised in Isaiah, or rather Psalm 132, who would come and sit on David's throne forever. But since, and Jesus is that promised son of David, he is that king who was to come. And he acknowledges that and receives that title. But that also means that he's the Messiah. Now, the term Messiah comes from uh, the, the Old Testament and simply means anointed one. Our, our word Christ is actually the word Messiah in a different language. So when we call Jesus Christ or Jesus the Christ, we're saying he is Jesus the Messiah. And as he enters Jerusalem 2,000 years ago, the crowds understand that to some degree, Jesus is coming to bring in the kingdom that was promised. What do they cry out to him as he enters the city? He, they cry out to him, the one who's coming in the name of the Lord who is bringing the kingdom. So they're connecting Jesus to the Old Testament prophecies about the Messiah who is going to rid them of all of their enemies. And Jesus is stoking this fire. In fact, this passage is brimming with prophetic fulfillment that Jesus seems to have designed. It's not just that he knew this was happening. He seems to have been planning for it, orchestrating it even. So the first question I ask as I come to this passage is this, what's up with the donkey? What, how does the donkey figure into this story? Obviously, it's a big deal. Mark makes a big deal about it. What's up with the donkey? Now, my in-laws live up in Ottawa, just up the road on 75 little ways, and they live in a beautiful neighborhood. But right behind this neighborhood and right behind their house is a farm. And on this farm, there is a donkey. There's, there's a donkey on this farm. And every once in a while, every half hour or 45 minutes or so, this is not the, the donkey, by the way. It's just a picture of donkeys. Every once in a while, you will hear this donkey start braying. And he'll just go off for 10 or 15 seconds, and then it's like he runs out of breath and just can't sustain it anymore, and he kind of ends on this, and then like 45 minutes later, he'll p pick back up again. It's really funny. Donkeys are funny looking. They sound funny. They're kind of so ugly, they're cute sort of thing. But they don't exactly scream kingship. Power. Authority. So what's up with the donkey? Well, it fulfills a prophecy about Israel's coming king. In Zechariah chapter 9, verse 9, we read this. Rejoice greatly, O daughter of Zion. Shout aloud, O daughter of Jerusalem. Behold, your king is coming to you. Righteous and having salvation is he. Humble and mounted on a donkey on a colt, the foal of a donkey. By riding into Jerusalem on a donkey, Jesus is claiming a right to the Davidic throne. 
He's claiming direct authority. He is the king of a kingdom. But he's coming in humility. He's coming unlike any king had ever come and has ever come since. Because Jesus' kingdom is an upside-down kingdom. He comes in gentleness and lowliness and humility. But what's up with the crowds laying their clothes on the ground, their cloaks, so that Jesus can ride through the streets and not have the donkey's hooves touch the ground? What's, what is that all about? Well, for the Jewish, under the Jewish reader, the Jewish hearer of this story, or the one who is watching this take place, his or her mind would have directly gone back to 2 Kings chapter 9, where another king in Israel is announced. His name was King Jehu. And when he is announced as king, the men around him immediately take their cloaks off and put down on the bare steps because a new king has arrived. So what does all this mean? What, is, what are all these symbols within this passage directing our attention towards? Mainly this. Jesus is the king, and he's coming in the name of God, unapologetically. And he's coming as God's anointed. So in this first truth, we've covered 11 verses, right? In this next truth, we're going to cover almost three chapters, so we're going to pick up the pace. You ready to go? Truth number two. Jesus hates self-righteous religion. Jesus hates self-righteous religion. So Jesus enters Jerusalem tri triumphantly. And then he enters the temple and he looks around the city and the temple and then they leave Jerusalem for the night. The next morning, on their way back into the city, we have this really odd paragraph that Mark, for some reason, thinks it's really important that we know this. And what is this paragraph? Jesus curses a fruitless fig tree. Because that obviously seems really important to the story, right? I mean, its meaning is very on the surface, right? We understand, well, I'm saying this all tongue-in-cheek, why on earth is Mark including this story? Well, just this last week, uh, Elizabeth and I were getting ready to make one of our favorite snacks. If you, as you get to know us, you'll, you'll hear us refer to these all the time. It's kind of pathetic, actually. Um, they're called breakfast bars. They're really 24-7 bars. We eat them all the time. Uh, almond butter, dates, and cocoa powder. Put it in a food processor, mix it all together, flatten it out in a pan, cut into bars, Forget cutting into bars. Just eat the pan, and uh, it's awesome. They are delicious. They figure prominently in our lives these days. Three simple ingredients. So we were getting ready to make these. We're all excited, and then we figure out, huh, there's a problem. We are out of cocoa powder. No breakfast bars. Now, sorry, that's crushing to my soul at that point. All right, severe disappointment. So is that what's going on here? Like, is Jesus really upset and disappointed that on his way into Jerusalem, he stops by his favorite fig tree thinking he can get 
a morning snack before he goes about his day, and when the tree doesn't have figs, he's just really disappointed about it, upset, bothered, and going to curse it. And notice, what does the passage say? It's not even the season for figs. Like, no fig tree is going to have figs at this particular time of year. But Jesus curses it. Why? He's using this fig tree as a parable. It's a living picture. That fig tree he's going to compare to Jerusalem, to the temple, to the entire religious superstructure that has completely spoiled the once perfect and pure worship of the one true God. When Jesus again leaves the city, he passes by that fruitless fig tree, and it is now a dead fruitless fig tree. It will never again produce fruit. The fig tree is a picture of the fruitlessness of the temple in the service of self-righteous religion. All of those sacrifices daily that were taking place, all of that ritual, all of that pageantry, much of it that was actually commanded in the Old Testament law had become nothing but a show, nothing but ritual. It was worthless, it was empty. In Jesus' estimation, it was worthy of only a curse. So what does he do? Well, he doesn't just curse the fig tree. He enters the temple and he cleanses it. He says, this was supposed to be a house of prayer for all of the nations to come. And you've made it a den of thieves. All that has desecrated the temple, empty, fruitless, self-righteous religion, it is squarely in the Messiah's sights. Jesus hates self-righteous religion. As surely as the fig tree is cursed and ends up withering, so also the Messiah has come to do away with self-righteous religion, empty religion that nourishes no one. And friends, that is really good news. And in this process, as he moves through this particular season, this week of his life, he refuses to subject himself to the self-appointed authority of the custodians of self-righteous religion. So if you go through chapter 11, even into chapter 12, you'll notice this back and forth between Jesus and the religious leaders. And it, I mean, it's like a tennis match. It just keeps going and going and going. And finally, a scribe is impressed by how Jesus is answering the religious leaders. And so this scribe asks what seems to be a sincere question. He asks Jesus, what is the greatest commandment of the law? Now, in rabbinic tradition, the scribes, the Pharisees, the rabbis would have said that the world rests on three things. The law the sacrificial system, and expressions of love. So what is Jesus going to say? Jesus completely ignores the first two. And he goes right 
to the command to love. He quotes directly from Deuteronomy chapter 6, and he says, The most important commandment is, Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one, and you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your mind, and with all your strength. And the second is this, you shall love your neighbor as yourself. There is no commandment greater than these. So when given the opportunity to publicly endorse self-righteous religion focused on externals, what does Jesus do? He ignores the externals. He goes right to the heart. Love the Lord your God with all your heart. Love your neighbor as yourself. It's a cliche for a reason. The heart of the matter is the matter of the heart. Greatest command, love God supremely, love others as yourself. And there is really encouraging news about that particular command. And the teacher of the law actually commends Jesus. He comes back and he says, wow, to love God with all the heart, with all the understanding, with all the strength, to love one's neighbor as oneself, that's more than all whole burnt offerings and sacrifices. That's better than the whole superstructure of religion that we have built. That's what the scribe is saying. In other words, everything you could ever possibly do in the name of religion is worth nothing in comparison to simply loving God and loving others. So there's something encouraging about this, but at the same time, if you think about it too deeply, as we ought to, it's actually discouraging. These are the commands that we are to live up to. We, you, I, are to love God with all our heart, soul, mind, and strength. And we're to love our neighbors as ourselves. Jesus is calling people to a higher standard, not a lower standard. He's not abolishing some superstructure so we can all achieve the least common denominator. No, he's saying, you've missed the point Loving God supremely, loving neighbor as self, that is what this is all about. And friends, none of us can reach that standard. What is Jesus' response to this scribe? He says, you are not far from the kingdom. The scribe's answer reflects priorities and a perspective that a citizen of Jesus' kingdom ought to have. So the weight of these verses ought to set in. We can't keep these two greatest commandments of God for five minutes of our life. But here's where we return to the question, why did Jesus die to begin with? The scriptures tell us that one reason is so the Father could demonstrate his love towards us. In while, yet, in while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. While we were still breaking all of his rules, including the two greatest, the Father sent his Son Jesus to take our place. To die our death that breaking those two rules incurs. 
And then the Father resurrected him from the grave so that you and I might live with him. So that we might experience the love of God towards us in all its fullness. So then chapter 12 ends with this beautiful picture of what it looks like to love love God with all of one's heart and soul and mind and strength. And what is that picture? It's the poor widow who gives out of her poverty the two mites, pieces of the lowest coin you could possibly own. She gives that back to the true God that she loves. And it's a painful place for Jesus to apply the realities of the two greatest commandments, right? He aims or he, he uses an individual giving out of her poverty. Our wallets and our checkbooks, a painful place for Jesus to apply loving God and loving neighbor. So we've seen two of the four truths that help us to understand the reason for Jesus' death. Truth number one, Jesus comes in the name of God as the anointed of God. Truth number two, Jesus hates self-righteous religion. Truth number three is this, Jesus triumphs over self-righteous religion. Jesus calls himself, in chapter 13, the Son of Man. In fact, he called himself that in chapter 8, in chapter 9, in chapter 10, multiple times. It's one of his favorite titles for himself. And it's not simply a declaration, Jesus saying, I'm a human being. I'm a son of a man, therefore I am human. That's certainly part of what he's communicating. He is truly man, but the religious leaders understood him to mean much more than that. The title son of man plus Jesus' claim to be Messiah is actually what caused the religious leaders to deliver him over to the political leaders to be crucified. So the religious leaders understood something about this title, Son of Man. Well, he's getting this title from the book of Daniel. Daniel is clearly seeing the eternal king in chapter 7. He's having a vision, and this is what he sees. Daniel chapter 7, one like a son of man, coming with the clouds of heaven. He approached the ancient of days and was led into his presence. He was given authority, glory, and sovereign power. All nations and peoples of every language worshipped him. His dominion is an everlasting dominion that will not pass away, and his kingdom is one that will never be destroyed. So follow what's happening back in Mark 13. Jesus predicts the destruction of the temple to his disciples. He then says that the Son of Man is going to return. So the temple of God, intended to be a place of true worship, but that has turned into the Mecca, if you will, of self-righteous religion, that temple is going to be destroyed. But the Son of Man is going to return in power, triumphant over everything, including self-righteous religion. Mark 13, verse 24, 
Then they will see the Son of Man coming in clouds with great power and glory. The temple's destroyed, self-righteous religion is no more, and what is in its place? The true temple, Jesus Christ. He has triumphed. So Jesus comes in the name of God as God's anointed. He hates self-righteous religion. He's going to triumph over self-righteous religion. But this brings us to a point of response here and now. What does this mean for us today? Truth number four. Jesus died to save you from your self-righteous religion. It all comes to pass just like Jesus predicts. Blind to their own sinfulness and blind to the unreachable glory of God, these self-righteous crowds that are cheering him at the beginning of the week are screaming for his execution at the end of the week. And they crucify Jesus. And it's easy for us who know the rest of the story to sit back and read these pages and to point fingers at the Pharisees, right? Those awful, wicked men that they would reject the Son of God and crucify Him to protect their own power. But here's the painful truth. There's a Pharisee living right here. Each one of us are Pharisees of one kind or another. All of us have a tendency to use external means to evaluate our own standing with God and to evaluate how others stand before God. Or to evaluate our standing with whatever view we have of God or the supreme being. So friend, if you're sitting here and you think you can be made right with God through some effort on your part, through some external means, if you're hoping your good works will outweigh your bad on judgment day, if if you ease your conscience by comparing yourselves to others morally and finding yourself in better shape, or if you've disregarded God altogether and created your own system of relating to others in morality, using a structure of morality of your own making to govern your behavior, if any of these things are true, then you're engaged in the very self-righteous religion that God hates that Jesus hates, that Jesus came to deliver you from. So let's just ask the question that we referenced a few moments ago. Do you love God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength? If you can't say a universal yes to that question, a yes that encompasses every second of your life, every ounce of expended energy, every stray thought, every affection and desire, then you're in trouble. I'm in trouble. Any qualified yes, any yes with an asterisk or a footnote is a no. It's the very essence of sin, the very essence of idol worship. You and I are constantly in violation of the one greatest command. And no amount of self-righteous religion or rule-keeping is going to change that. 
the wages of sin, the paycheck we earn for sin, is death. But the gift of God is eternal life. The Son of Man came to serve and to give His life a ransom for many. So the point of the sermon is not to drive us to a pit of despair that we don't love God and love neighbor as we ought to, but rather it's to drive us to the foot of the cross where we see the love of God displayed for us and at the same time where we see the end result of our self-righteous religion. The sent one of God crucified by sinful human beings for sinful, self-righteous human beings. So right now in these moments, Jesus is calling you to submit to his lordship. To submit to the fact that he's coming from the Father. That he hates self-righteous religion that can't deliver you. And that he died, he gave his life in your place to deliver you from your own self-righteous religion. The very thing that would condemn you for all of eternity. And he died to bring you into the family of God. Where you will then be free to follow Jesus in joyful obedience because of his grace, not seeking to establish your own righteousness. And he brings us into this relationship as we repent of our sin and believe on Jesus. It really is that simple. That's why it's grace. Some of us here today need this good news of the gospel because we wake up every single day with a tendency to attempt to relate to God based on some external reality. Have you ever had thoughts like these? I need to read my Bible today so I have a good day, so God will like me. Or, since I gave into that temptation and sinned, again, then I have to be extra good the next 48 hours as some sort of probation period before I can allow myself to commune with God again. Does anyone other than me have these thoughts at times? Earlier we showed this picture. It's a graphic picture of how we try to relate to God. As if we can do something to beat ourselves into a position of forgiveness. We may not whip ourselves to the point of blood, as these men have, but we lay out all these hoops and all these rules that we make for ourselves and that we require ourselves to jump through in order to be right with God. And then if that wasn't enough, we use these same hoops and rules and set them before others before they can be right with God. Whether it's this or what we just described, it's barbaric. It's not grace. 
It's not the way of Jesus. Your relationship with God is not based upon your performance or anything you do. It's based upon solely what Christ has already done on your behalf. He died in your place to satisfy the wrath of God against your sin so that God the Father might adopt you into his family as one of his beloved children. Lewis Allen writes this in a book called The Preacher's Catechism. He says, Life in Christ is not, above all, a set of commands to obey externally, but the inward work of the Holy Spirit to remake our minds and hearts. Only then does faith express itself in glad obedience. As those who are led by the Spirit, we are to be led into a life of deepening and joy-filled contentment in Christ. So here's the reality. We get to enter into glad obedience this week by faith in Jesus Christ through the inward working of the Holy Spirit because we are being made new. Because Jesus died to save us from our self-righteous religion. So no, no matter where you find yourself today personally, here's the good news. You no longer need to be dominated by self-righteous religion and attempts to relate to God in your own effort. Jesus graciously commands and lovingly invites you today, right now, to reject your self-righteous religion and to embrace him in repentant faith. So the question is this. Will you? Will you? Let's pray together. Father, we are so grateful for the Lord Jesus Christ. Father, we thank you that on this day we get to celebrate the truth that Jesus Christ did come as a king, but that he came the first time to die so that we might live with him. Father, I pray for those among us who are weighed down under the weight and the burden of sin. Father, would you grant freedom by your grace to leave that sin behind? Not to walk in self-righteousness, but to walk in love for you and love for others. Father, I pray that this church family would be marked by a humble dependence upon the Lord Jesus Christ every single hour. That we would be a place that calls people over and over again, not to some man-made superstructure of religion, but simply calls men and women to the cross of Jesus Christ. And Father, may that begin with us individually. By your grace, bring us back over and over again to the Lord Jesus Christ and what he's done for us. And we pray this in his name. Amen.